The China and Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Witt University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on Africa-China relations through innovative training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.co.za. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, February 17th this year uh, marked World Pangolin Day. Now, normally that's not a day that would actually attract much attention from the likes of you and I, who, although we like pangolins, it doesn't really necessarily register on our radar in terms of being a prominent story. But this year was different in part because there was a very impressive investigative journalism project that emerged on February 17th that really showcased the supply side out of Africa and the demand side in Asia for what is now the world's most trafficked animal. Now, pangolins, if you're not familiar with them, they are this scaly little cute animal that you would be amazed that anybody would want to consume, much less eat. But unfortunately, like a lot of wildlife in Africa and around the world, Asian consumers have a certain taste for it. And when Asian consumers in any numbers get a taste for something, it causes enormous problems. We've seen this with shark meat. We've seen it with, well, I won't go down the list, but it's a big, long list. And at the same time now, we're looking at really, can the pangolin survive in the midst of huge demand from Asian consumers, particularly from China. So this investigation was sponsored in part by the Africa-China Reporting Project, which, as you heard at the top of the show, is a supporter of our program, and also in partnership with HK01, which is a new digital news outlet founded two years ago in Hong Kong, and Anu Ngeze Paul, who's an environmental journalist at Green Echoes in Cameroon. So, Kobus, when we think about the pangolin and we think about the, the trend of where it's going in terms of the Asian consumption of it and the fact that so many African animals suffer when there is a such demand coming from Asia, what do you think we can do about it? Well, this becomes the million-dollar question. The, what makes it a more difficult situation is that pangolins are targeted for meat, but also specifically for their scales. So they are covered head-to-toe in these big brown scales, And they look a little bit like artichokes come to life, basically. And so those scales also are seen as having medicinal value in parts of Asia. So similar to rhino horn, there is the consumption of pangolin isn't just simply luxury, you know, kind of gastronomic consumption. It's also to do with people's panics about their health. And, you know, so it's a kind of a double whammy, some similar to, to rhino horn in the sense that once there is a, a perception that a certain kind of animal product can help people with, you know, kind of with health concerns, then that animal has a target on its back. And so it then becomes a big issue in trying to save it in which, you know, in, and in the African case, you, you then immediately start dealing with African governance and the kind of dysfunction of African systems. So as I mentioned, there's this innovative new report that came out, Pangolin Poaching in Africa and Trafficking to Asia, a cross-border investigation. It was a three-party investigation between the Africa-China Reporting Project, Hong Kong 01, 
and Green Echoes in Cameroon. We are thrilled today to be able to have one of those contributors on the program. Karen Jung is an investigative reporter with Hong Kong Zero One and joins us from Hong Kong. Thank you so much, Karen, for taking the time to talk with us about this important topic. Thank you, Eric. Thank you, Kobus. So tell us what is new that your reporting found. We've been talking about pangolin and animal trafficking for quite some time, actually, between Africa and Asia. But what did your reporting and investigation actually find that was new, particularly on the supply side in Asia? Right. Actually, we also see a lot of seizures in both mainland China and also Hong Kong and rest of Southeast Asia in the past, I would say, uh, 10 years. And... However, uh, the reports are mostly about the amount of seizures and the increasing amount first in Southeast Asia, like in Indonesia and also Malaysia and also Vietnam. But now in the past few years, we can see a lot of large seizures from African countries, especially in Hong Kong. So I think what was missing is like, as you mentioned, the uh, supply and demand, and also the smuggling route. So uh, the reports are mostly to review what happened. So in the supply side, as Cobus mentioned, actually the pangolins are not just used for the meat. In Southeast Asia, especially in China, there's a large market for the medicinal use because people think The Chinese traditional medicine thinks that it's good for the blood flowing and also good for the flow of a woman's breast flow. And although the government actually um, put a lot of strength in the law enforcement, but there is a large great market. So I went to the mainland China in southern China, Guangdong province, to do some underground investigations and found that Actually, there are still uh, a lot of Chinese medicine shops selling uh, illegal scales. So you can actually very easily get those scales. And online, you can actually get scales just like by ordering online using like Taobao. And I asked one of the shop owners and he said like they, they have all kinds of scales. Actually, those scales are mixed. You can get scales from Southeast Asia and also uh, from Africa. Taobao, for those of you not familiar, is the giant, enormous online marketplace here in China that a lot of people use to buy pretty much everything. So, uh, Kobus, go ahead. Uh, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about the supply side. I was surprised in your article about how complicated the networks are in Africa, you know, finding the animals and then supplying the scales. Yeah, sure. So in terms of the supply side, actually, thanks to the collaboration with Apoor from Cameroon, because, you know, in West Africa, especially in Cameroon and also in Nigeria, a lot of pangolins live in the bushes. So he did investigations. He went to different rural areas and found that actually the scales trade are growing because before the poachers, they don't use scales because it's useless for them. However, now you have the Chinese businessmen who go to the Western African countries and they will do business with them. So uh, what works is the poachers, they now keep the scales and wait for the middlemen who are also local uh, Africans to collect, to buy scales from them. 
and then these middlemen they will travel from rural areas back to big cities in say Cameroon or Nigeria and they will do business with Chinese businessmen and these Chinese businessmen they have their own way of smuggling the scales to China and maybe other Asian countries and that's what Hor found and I went to Johannesburg to a local market selling souvenirs some of them are、uh, illegal say like ivories and luckily i happened to meet a vendor who were selling、uh, pangolins so he told me that he used to catch pangolins from the bushes and once he got one pangolin he will call up local、uh, chinese man who always will buy from them at very high price so he told me that he also had a lot of skills so he offered to sell me and he was saying that the shipping route in terms of how to ship the skills to china usually a chinese man will do that they just sell the pangolin or、uh, pangolin skills to chinese Support for this podcast comes from the Africa Channel Reporting Project at Wits University School of Journalism in Johannesburg. The ACRP provides reporting grants, workshops, and other professional development opportunities for both African and Chinese journalists. Follow the ACRP on Twitter at Wits China Africa or visit africachannelreporting.co.za for information about grants and upcoming seminars. You know. It's hard to listen to what you're saying, and especially for a lot of Westerners, where environmentalism and wildlife conservation is much more prominent. And the Chinese mindset on this is very different, and not just Chinese. Actually, I'll extend it to Vietnam and some other countries as well, where even though today there is a young generation of wildlife conservationists who are really having an impact on social media, and I believe can be credited for pressuring even the likes of Xi Jinping for forcing the ivory ban. But at the same time, we come back to the same themes over and over again. Whether it's donkey skins and ejiao, whether it is the shark fin now with pangolin, that Chinese consumption, particularly for herbal medicine, results in tremendous, catastrophic environmental and wildlife destruction. Can you take us a little bit, particularly for people who are not familiar with this mindset, when you were talking to these buyers and when you were in Guangdong? Is there no sense that these animals, there's just a limited supply of them, and although it is a commercial transaction for them, is that all there is in the minds of these buyers? Is it just an opportunity to make money? Is there no morality in anything that they're doing? Well, for the bush meat restaurant I went, I think the owner, for him, it was just like living, because because he used to be a chef for a big. Bushmeat restaurant in Guangzhou, a big city, and he used to do that for his、uh, living. And after he quit, he started his own. That's the way he lives. Well, surely he can make money for doing other things, but、uh, I think for a lot of people, like in both supply and demand side, in the supply side, say like. Even in Africa, those poachers actually they just make very、uh, little money. The huge profits were achieved by those smugglers and also the sellers, say in China and other Asian countries. 
And did they express any worry, any of the people that you spoke to, did they express any worry about the pangolins just running out? I don't think so. Well, in Johannesburg, the local vendor, he said it was very hard to catch a pangolin nowadays. It may took three to four months for him to catch one. So that was very hard to get a live pangolin. But that doesn't sound like any regret or anything for killing this animal. But it's hard and hard for him to make money from this. Yeah, I mean, I think in Africa, you frequently, people live hard lives, you know, they are worried about surviving to next week, not about, you know, kind of the long distance, long term, you know, problems. So I can see that, you know, I can understand where that kind of thinking comes from, even though, you know, obviously, it's hugely problematic. Right. Can we drill down a little bit on where the demand is coming from in Asia? Because you, the report talks a lot about Asia. You've talked about Guangzhou and Guangdong in southern China. But does demand, and if we can be specific on countries and even in regions, so Southeast Asia is a market of 600 million people. China's 1.3 billion people. We're close to 2 billion people in those markets that have a demand for pangolins, which is quite large. Can you be a little bit more specific about where the demand is coming from? I think China and also Vietnam are maybe among the largest. If you tell from the seizures of pangolin scales, and also Malaysia and Indonesia. And actually Hong Kong in the past four years, that's what triggered me to do this project or really surprised me in the first is that in the past four years, Hong Kong Customs seized actually 31.4 tons of pangolin scales in total. And among the- I mean, when you think think about that, think about what thirty one tons of pangolin scales means. I mean, these are these are not large animals. How large is each pangolin? It depends, but usually but I they're, think it's they're like a few kilos, right? Five they're not that large. To six kilograms. Okay, so five to six kilos, and that's they confiscated thirty one tons. I mean, that's just mind boggling. How many animals that is? I think that's at least around 50,000. Wow. Yeah. It's remarkable. Actually, among these 31.4 tons, 30 tons are from African countries. And actually, Hong Kong, it doesn't have large consumption for skills. So it becomes a smuggling transit. Uh, from Hong Kong, you can see uh, from some judgments that it goes to mainland China. Because some people use speedboat to ship the scales from those shipments to the southern China. So in your article, you you mentioned that the Cameroonian government is starting to try to crack down on this trade. How successful have they been so far? Paul did this investigation and he said the Cameroon government actually like uh, showed the resolute to combat this pangolin smuggling and has some law enforcement. However, the law enforcement is not very effective, especially in the rural areas. Say the poachers in the villages, they don't know it's illegal for poaching, for making money by trading the scales. So it's very hard for the law enforcement. After you did your investigation on the pangolin, this animal that a lot of people don't really think about, but yet is fast approaching endangered status, 
What's your sense of, of where this goes? Because when what you're telling me is weak law enforcement in Cameroon on the supply side and vast demand across Malaysia, Indonesia, Vietnam, and of course, China means that I wouldn't be too optimistic about the fate of the pangolin, that my nine-year-old son will not really be able to see pangolins when he becomes an adult because they will be gone. What is your assessment about the future for this animal? Yeah, I interview a lot of pangolin experts in Africa and also Hong Kong and China. Um, they are not pessimistic about pangolin's futures because although all eight species have been now under the highest protection or society's appendix for one, but the smuggling doesn't seem like a decrease. So I think a lot of measures need to be taken, especially in terms of the law enforcement in countries. I know that China is also like strengthening the uh, law enforcement. In the past few years, especially last year, you can see a lot of pangolin scale seizures by the government. And also they caught criminals for doing the smuggling. Uh, however, in Hong Kong, it's the punishment seems very uh, light, and I don't see people are punished for smuggling pangolin scales. Like the highest penalty for uh, smuggling pangolin scales in the past four years is just like around ten thousand Hong Kong dollars penalty, or uh, like fifteen month in prison. The article is Pangolin Poaching in Africa and Trafficking to Asia, a cross-border investigation. You can find that over on the Africa China Reporting Project's website at africachinareporting.co.za. It's also been covered widely in the media, and it was published to mark World Pangolin Day. Again, pangolin's not one of those animals that a lot of people focus on. But it sure is really cute, but it's also really highlighting the dangers that are happening when massive Asian demand comes in contact with poverty in Africa, where people are selling these animals. It was a tripartite investigation with the Africa-China Reporting Project, Hong Kong Zero One, which is a digital news outlet founded a couple years ago, and Anung Keze Paul, who's an environmental journalist at Green Echoes in Cameroon. We were thrilled, Karen from Hong Kong Zero One for you to take the time to join us. If people want to follow what you are reporting on and reading these days, is there a way that they can follow HK Zero One? Is your content in Chinese or in English? In Chinese. It's in Chinese. Do you have any content in English by any chance? Not really, but for this ah. story, uh, we have the English subtitles. Yeah. They have English subtitles, and there are five stories on this, including videos, which you should not miss. We will post links to all five of the stories that uh, Karen and Paul produced. It's really amazing collaboration, and this is really why the Africa-China Reporting Project at Wits University exists, is to bring together journalists like Karen and Paul. So Karen, thank you so much for taking time late at night in Hong Kong. We really appreciate it, and we really appreciate the fact that you're bringing attention to such an important issue. Thank you very much. Kobus, it's fascinating to hear Karen's reporting on this for Pangolin because it sounds so much like what we're hearing for rhino trade in Vietnam that's now crossing the border into China as well. And the part that's most depressing to me is that there's really, I think, nothing that can be done because all of these countries, they don't cooperate together. So China, Vietnam, Malaysia, Indonesia, Cameroon, they're not going to collaborate to crack down on the Pangolin trade. 
China may be doing more to do seizures. Hong Kong may be doing more to do seizures, but Vietnam probably isn't. Malaysia, Indonesia may or may not. It's just not a top priority in these countries. Whereas you pointed out early in the show, poverty oftentimes trumps everything else. And in Vietnam, for example, you know, wildlife trade is just not the most important issue on their agenda, whether it's for rhino horns, ivory, or in this case, pangolin. So the pessimism that Karen talked to, I think, resonates with me as well. And I fear the fact that pangolins may not be around for much longer. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you. This is difficult to not agree with you. I think the issue, we have seen successes. You know, we have seen when the power of international media starts being used. We've seen successes with ivory. We've seen successes with, with shark fin. So it's not impossible. It just takes a lot of work. But, I think Africa but the difference, is... But hold ahead. on, Kobus. The difference between those successes is because China did something about it. China banned shark fin and China banned ivory. And that was one country that has an authoritarian government that can actually implement a policy change very effectively when it chooses to. But when we're talking about transborder, multinational types of issues, I don't know if we have the same successes. Yeah, you're right. And, you know, the missing player here is Africa. You know, Africa needs to be a lot more proactive about these things. But of course, Africa has its own preoccupations, you know, in including massive pervasive poverty being the main one. So you know, there is some popular pushback in Africa when these measures get a lot of attention, when there is this natural question being asked, like, why is so much energy being put into saving animals when no one seems to care about what happens, what happens to the people, which is a legitimate thing to ask. At the same time, I have to say, like, I frequently get this vertigo panic attack feeling when I see how quickly these species are disappearing. When you look as a whole and you suddenly realize, like, oh, Within a little fraction of my life, these animals will be gone. You know, there's something terrifying about it, that feeling of like, oh, we're just going to be left here on the planet, just us, just humans, and yeah. nothing else. I mean, it, um, and it's happening faster than we can It's happening so that we can fast. Imagine. It's happening so fast. And I guess, where do we assign the blame? So it's it's obvious that the demand side is where blame, but does the supply side have responsibility as well? And again, poverty confronts both sides. Corruption confronts both sides. And this lack of morality confronts all sides here. And again, I know that it might be a Western indulgence to worry about the animals, maybe at the expense of people. But as you pointed out, if we don't worry about these animals, then they're going to be gone. And what does the world look like without animals? In here in Asia, there just doesn't seem to be the awareness and sensitivities on a mass scale. Again, there are pockets of it in places like Vietnam and China, particularly among young people. But for the most part, you still see this idea that it's better to have Chinese herbal medicine with donkey skins. It's better to take a medicine that you think will cure HIV, but it's made of rhino horn, which of course we all know is just ridiculous. You and I know it's ridiculous, but unfortunately a lot of other people don't know that. And thus the demand for rhinos continues, even though governments have said they're going to crack down on it. Yeah. And of course, you know, at the moment, the concern about these animals are coded as Western. But if you look a little bit back in Western history, like Western countries were just as enthusiastically wiping out animals. You know, the whole of like 19th century Canada, their entire economy was basically fur based. You know, it's very similar in Russia in the 19th century, you know, kind of like pervasive like species of, you know, kind of wolves, otters, a whole bunch of like fur bearing species were essentially wiped out. And, you know, obviously then you're not even talking about Western colonialists in Africa. I mean, there was such a thing as a professional big game hunter just simply killing big game. Yeah. You know, hundreds and hundreds of them. 
as a professional job, just to quote clear land, you know. So, I mean, that the West is very involved in it, even though they now are the home of concern about these issues. I think other countries need to learn from Western experiences in this regard. It's a fair point. And I just want to be clear, too, that my concern is not necessarily a stereotypical Western concern for environmental issues at the expense of people. But it is something that is shocking to me, as you pointed out, that the animal population in so many instances is falling in part because of surging demand in many parts of Asia. So it's a depressing issue. But at the same time, we are so grateful for the Africa-China Reporting Project to bring together Hong Kong Zero One and Green Echoes in Cameroon to report on this subject, to bring it to life so that people actually know about it, because nothing can be done if people don't know about what's happening, particularly with pangolins. And pangolins are not like elephants or rhinos that get a lot of attention. They're these kind of scaly animals. They're cute as all get out. Trust me, go look on Google for what a pangolin looks like. And they're really super cute, but it sounds like they're up against some really daunting odds for their survival. So we'd love to hear what you think. We have so many different ways for you to engage with us. We love getting all of your comments on Facebook, on LinkedIn, on Twitter, uh, via email. Please do let us know what you think of these topics. Do you agree? Do you disagree? Do you think that we should kind of delve deeper into issues on animal welfare and conservation? You can reach me at eric at chinaafricaproject.com. Cobus is at cobus at chinaafricaproject.com. We love hearing from you. And of course, if you want to follow us, you can go onto our website at chinaafricaproject.com and you'll find all of the links to our social media platforms. We'll be back again next week with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash chinaafricaproject to share your thoughts on today's show. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Gwobas at Stadinsky or Eric at eOlander. And be sure to sign up for the weekly China in Africa email newsletter by going to www.chinaafricaproject.com.